Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team. So, a little about our sponsors, Ericsson. As we're all aware, the oil and gas industry is digitizing rapidly. In addition to helping the industry reap the benefits of cost reductions, capture efficiencies for top-line revenue, achieve safety and environmental goals, digitization is enabling better and stronger connectivity. Ericsson provides best-in-class connectivity solutions for the oil and gas industry with its 4G and 5G private networks. Check out their site at www.ericsson.com forward slash oil and gas. I will put this in the notes of each one of the episodes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce of Tomorrow, sponsored by Ericsson. My name is Jason Duff. I'm the IBM Oil and Gas Industry Lead. My co-host today is Neil Syme. Hello, Neil. How's it going, Jason? How are you? I'm good. We're going to confuse everyone again because we've got two Scotsmen on and know, no one well, will understand it, what the hell we're talking like it's about. It's just one person, so as long as that works. You know, I've told that to IBM. You're Monday, Tuesday, totally, Wednesday. I'm totally. um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I think. <laughs> I put in a weird, a weird beard wig type thing and I just pretend to be you. That's what it is, Jason. <laughs> so we're going to talk about bringing manufacturing back home today. So, Neil, who have we got who I think is going to be a fantastic speaker today? Yeah, we've got an amazing guest, actually. We've got Harry Moser from the company Reshoring. So, hello, Harry. It's actually Reshoring Initiative is the full name of the company, but still delighted to be here, and I'm enjoying the brogue. (laughs) And he's mother Scottish, Neil, so we're okay. That's the connect. There's three of us that are going to be Scottish here. (laughs) So, Harry, can you introduce yourself, who Harry is, before, and then who Reshoring Initiative is? Because you are the founder for the last 14 years, if I understand that right, correct? The the founder and and the president for the last 14 years. So, uh, Harry Moser... Born in New Jersey, went to MIT, engineering degrees, University of Chicago MBA, worked in manufacturing, big companies, small companies, worked my way up, eventually was president of what was then called Charmi, which is the largest maker of EDM and high-speed milling machines. So I ran North America for them. Wonderful job, delightful job, and retired from that in 2010, founded the nonprofit Reshoring Initiative, whose mission is to balance the goods trade deficit, which last year was $1.2 trillion, that's trillion with a T, Dang. that will increase U.S. manufacturing by about 40%, about 6 million manufacturing jobs. Okay, that, I mean, that sounds great, Harry. Maybe can you tell us, before you tell us exactly even more around that, is how did you personally get into it? How did you find yeah, your way into this particular organization? Well, first I founded it. So it no, no, but how, what made you make that move? I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and the biggest thing in town was Singer Sewing Machine. Yep. So the, yeah. So there was a main factory in the world, like they had one in Clydebank also. For I think my well, granny I think had one. I think I've got one as well somewhere. <laughs> I think yeah, there's always a Scottish sure. connect to these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> my dad ran about a third of the factory, and eventually he was technical expert. He traveled to Clydebank and other places to help them with my goodness. Manufacturing processes. So this big factory, 3 million square feet, 5,000 workers, biggest factory in the world of any kind in its day around 1900, 1920. And I went past 
20 years ago and it was all gone. Nothing a singer, as far as I tell, is made there anymore. I cried for the jobs that had been lost, all imports coming in from low labor cost countries. And then during my career, I sold the CNC machine tools and foundry equipment. Mm-hmm. And industry after industry, job after company after company I wanted to sell to went out of business before I could get to them wiped out by imports. So when I retired from my regular job, I said, this can't go on forever. The country's going to go down the drain. Somebody's got to do something about it. So I'm the guy and the rest is history, as they say. Very nice. Very nice. So now that you've, we know how you got there, tell us a bit more about what it is. So what is reshoring this? First, I'll tell you what reshoring is, because that'll put it in perspective. So reshoring is the decision and the action by a U.S. headquartered company, think General Motors, for example, to once again produce in the country product that for a while it had been getting from outside the country. Could be castings, could be machine parts, could be plastic parts, could be, you know, what have you. So that's reshoring. We also track FDI, Foreign Direct Investment which is a foreign headquartered company putting in a factory here. So Shell, for example, in their big facility, Toyota, Siemens, any of those, they build a factory here, they hire people here, that's FDI. So just like the reshoring, it's that that company deciding that instead of producing it there, they'll produce it here. And that's what we want to bring about. So that's what reshoring and FDI are. And then the reshoring initiative action to enable that is first we document it. So we show that For example, in the year, in 2010, when we were founded, 6,000 jobs were announced in that year. And last year, 2022, in the year, 360,000 were announced. Okay, so 60 times as much. And so just by getting that information out, by by the people that will hear our podcast, someone out there will say, huh, it really is happening. At least take a look at it, because if all those other companies could do it, maybe we can do it too. Okay, so we set a good example. How does it target, though? I mean, if I think about outsourcing or offshoring, whatever one to call it, it's always driven by price. And looking at your details and some of the marketing material you've got there, I think you would agree. But it's also scale and skills. There's a reason it happened in Scotland as well, by the way, Harry. So, I mean, a lot of our businesses that Neil and I saw when China came, Scotland used to be a great place to do manufacturing and assembly. Guess what? We just lost it. Yeah, ship bills. Yeah, let's start crying. How do we then turn that round, Harry? What's changed that makes reshoring and reshoring initiative the right thing to do? How do we convince the people of? Because there's a TCO model that you currently use, right? I think that's what you're. You're throwing three or four things on the plate there. The sorry. Uh, <laughs> first, the work went offshore because the wages were so low offshore. So okay. back twenty years ago, twenty-three years ago, when China really got going. Their wages were 50 cents an hour, and here they were, you know, 15, say, an hour, dollars an hour. The difference was so great that even if they didn't have the quality or the productivity, the work went there. But now, over time, their wages have gone up to the point where they're now about $7 an hour. So they're 14 times maybe what they were 23 years ago, and ours have only gone up 20%, 25%. Now they're a third of our wage instead of a 20th of our wage. And so it's been generally agreed that even before COVID, even before the trade wars, work was flowing out of China somewhere, Vietnam, Cambodia, Mexico, India, and some to the U.S. My job is to convince companies to grab some of that work when it comes out and decide to bring it here. And when they use TCO, which is what you mentioned, it's a free online software on our website. And you sign up, you sign in, you use it. And instead of just looking at the price, instead of just saying, what's the FOB or XWorks price 
at here and there. And if you only do that, the U.S. is 30, 40% higher than China. It's a pretty easy decision to go to China. Yeah. But if you do TCO and you start with that price and yet in the duty and the freight and the carrying cost of inventory and the travel cost, the intellectual property risk, the risk of stocking out, because if you compare something coming in once a quarter in a big container versus something coming in a box every three days from the factory around the corner, the chances of stocking out are much greater with the one infrequent delivery from a great distance. And so, so when you put all of those things together, we conclude that even, as, let's say, as of two years ago, three years ago, looking at it, that based on price, the U.S. would win 8% of the time. Based on total cost of ownership, 32% of the time. Wow. And if there's a Section 301 Trump tariff on, Chi on Chinese products, then that goes up to 55 or 60% of the time. So by doing the math correctly, it becomes clear to companies, if they do the math, that a significant portion, not all, but a significant portion of work makes sense to bring here. Now, in addition to that, many companies are deciding that the geopolitics has gotten to the point where having all your eggs or many of your eggs in the Chinese or Taiwanese basket is, is too dangerous. I've got quotes from a dozen senior Wall Street people and saying things like, if you're counting on being able to get low price stuff out of China, you got your head in the sand and you should think of reshoring, of pulling the work out of there and making it here or somewhere close to here as a form of insurance against the disruption that is very or increasingly likely to occur with a geopolitical incident over Taiwan. That's really interesting, Harry, because certainly I, in my past life, have done the other way. I have done business cases, the T well, not the TCO, I should probably point that out, because the business cases we do are T people times wage, and that's all we focus on, right? And that's where a lot of companies have decided to move their workforce, typically services in our opinion. Very rarely have I ever dabbled in manufacturing, I should point out. But I should say that things are changing in the mood swings and the mood music I hear around companies. How many successes are you seeing now where previous outshoring has become inshoring or yeah. reshoring? We would say offshoring has become reshoring. Yeah, Okay. Yep. that's right. You know what? I told you it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. For us, outsourcing is to have it done at another company, no matter sure, where they're located. Right. Exactly. And offshoring and reshoring are geographic determinants. Huh? Obviously, we identified 360,000 jobs last year announced coming back, a combination of reshoring and FDI. That's a combination of about 1,000 companies doing that. Now, it's been accelerated the last two years by the country, the United States, getting involved and being committed to it. So specifically, the Biden administration, somewhat bipartisan, has had the funding for the EV batteries and the chips, all these things where we're yep. dependent on somebody else, and especially somebody else we can't count on, rebuilding that capability here. And so I've got a list of like a dozen or two dozen of these EV battery factories. In fact, the President Biden, about a month before the election, put out a map that showed where the big factories had occurred since his election. And down here under the sourcing, we were the number one source for the data. What was actually nice. happening out there? So my favorite story in general, there's a company called Mori, M-O-R-E-Y Corp in Woodridge, Illinois. Mm -hmm. they, they make yep. printed circuit boards. They're an EMS company. And uh -huh. yep. they came to me about five years ago. I knew them. They said, Harry, we're going to lose a big order. We need your help. And so I helped Tony, the vice president, 
do the TCO calculation from the perspective of his customer. We did that. He took it in, showed the customer that even though Maury's price was higher, the TCO to the customer was lower. And I have a letter from them saying that was the key to winning a $60 million order. Fantastic. And that was going to be my next question is, so the reshoring initiative, how do you get involved? How do you then make a difference and where do you then step in? It sounds like on request, but is that typically the way that you engage with organizations or what else do you guys do? I've tried to design it so we don't have to engage. We've tried to change the mood, as one of you referred. And so the companies will say, yes, it makes sense. It makes sense to reevaluate the decisions we made in the past. The decisions might have been right 15 years ago, but time for a new decision because factors have changed. Costs have changed. Geopolitics has changed, et cetera. And so we try to do it that way and have all the tools they need online for them to use. And they don't even have to call me. They just go out and use it. If they do want to help, We'll help them with the TCO. We'll help them. Like one of the nice things we do, a company can put up a product and say, here's a shaft or a bearing or a housing or you know, a plastic part, something. And we'll tell them who the biggest importers are of these things and what tonnage they're bringing in, whom they're buying them from offshore, roughly what they're paying for them. And then we train our client to use the TCO estimator to go to the importer and convince the importer to buy from them instead of continuing to import. And so how do the I don't know for sure, but I assume most of the heads of the Fortune 500 listen to this podcast. So when they do, how do they best get in touch with Reshoring Initiative just to try and do that? Give you a chance to give a little pitch on how that would that interaction would work. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, www.reshorenow.org is the website, and they'll find the TCO estimator. They'll find the import substitution program, which is what I just described. They can email me at harry.moser, M-O-S-E-R, at reshorenow.org. And people email me every day and say, Harry, I want to reshore. Yeah, sometimes they're looking for me to help them find sources of components and products and materials. And other times they want uh, sort of economic advice on how to do it. I'm delighted to hear from companies about their successes because the only way I get to count these 360,000 jobs last year was finding out about them. So if someone has done it, we want to hear. And I want to help with their opportunities. Like you said, this is not something new. You've been doing this for 14 years. And the proof, the the info that you shared with Neil and I, the four big industries, transportation equipment, computer and electronic products, machinery, medical equipment, a million jobs plus in those areas. Do you see as we get to more reshoring, is it going to be really, I think that's 60% of the million jobs in that space of reshoring. Is it going to still be those industries that will have the impact? The numbers you have there are the sort of traditional industries prior to this recent surge with the government spending so much. With those, electronics, I think, is number one because EV batteries are classified as electronics. Okay, That's pulled up. And chemicals has moved up because hydrogen and some of the chemicals that go, the lithium and so on that go into the EV batteries are chemicals. And those things have all been pulled up. You might say the whole thing's churned up, but the traditional industries that were doing so well are still doing well. And then this is the extra thrown on top of that, which has allowed the surge in jobs up for the last two years when the money's been flowing. How do we take that then, Harry and Neil? And I mean, what do we need to do to keep, because clearly the skill demand will rise. What do we need to do with universities or skilling people? We talked about Mm -hmm. being 
similar to Germany, that type of model, I think, Harry, as we were talking in the prep, I mean, that has to be important for the supply and demand to be really matched, correct? Correct. And it isn't so much. There's certainly need for more engineers from universities. Like I think in China, maybe 40% of the university graduates are engineers and here maybe 10% are or something like that. So we need more engineers and fewer anthropologists and sociologists. But more so, I'm convinced we need more toolmakers, welders, precision machinists, chemical technicians, people like that, that actually are the ones that are out there in the trenches getting the job to fix it, repair, deciding what equipment to put in, maintaining the equipment, running the equipment correctly, programming it. Now, one of the reasons we've had a shortage of those has been offshoring. Because if you think of the people who lost their jobs, for example, in Scotland, or the people that lost them throughout the Midwest, especially in the U.S., they saw the factory in town get shut down and the work moved to some other country. They knew their uncle had lost his job and never got another good job, went on opioids, you know, had problems because of this. And they said, no way, I'm going into manufacturing. And so they became a teacher or a postal worker or who knows what. Part of the benefit of what we're doing today, getting the message out, is people seeing it. And then the, when the kid comes to the parent or the school counselor and says, What do you think about a manufacturing job? Wow, you know, that's hot again. Those jobs are surging back. And it's not just growth here. We're pulling the work back from China and from other countries where we lost it to in the past because the U.S., once again, is more competitive. And so, yes, that's a great career. You almost need a skill build program, as we call it. So IBM just now, clearly, it's more IT and cybersecurity, AI, generative AI. We're going to train 30 million people globally by 2030. But Neil and I are involved with a company called IT Experience, teaming with IBM, training these people that need the training in families that really need, that can't pay for the training. And so really focusing on the right people, get the training to them free, coach them, get them into the market and train. So there's almost, I can see, Neil, a very similar thing that Harry's saying of really what we're doing in IT as well, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the one good thing about it is that you can use those skills in the manufacturing industry, you can use them in services. So it's nowadays, I think some of those technology skills that you just mentioned there, especially are transferable amongst both, right? They could be, look at a Tesla, for example, you still manufacture a Tesla, but the amount of electronics behind that is amazing. I wanted to actually ask a question around and use Tesla as an example, right? I'm based in Austin here, Harry, but... I know Tesla, they're building a big factory by the airport here, and their headquarters are now here. But I know they've also got a large manufacturing facility in China. And so how do companies make that call in terms of that overlay of trying to find the right mix? And also, especially now with the geopolitical stuff, maybe with COVID, you know, all that recent stuff, how do you go about persuading them to make sure that that mix is more heavily involved in the US side than it is, say, in the China? And I think... Tesla is a great example. Yeah. Well, first, we advocate for localization. Yeah. Okay. And many companies are doing that. Toyota, for example, they act under what's called the Toyota production system, a series of wastes that you should avoid. And the wastes are all made worse by offshoring, by sourcing stuff half a world away. And so by having things local, you minimize all kinds of costs and risks. And so companies understand that, and we help them to understand that. So we certainly say, yes, you should make more here. But in general, we say you should make more close to where you're going to sell it. Hmm. And if companies do that, since the U.S. is the biggest market and has currently by far the biggest trade deficit, 
to the extent that companies move towards making, let's say, call it deglobalization, if you like, towards making things regionally or locally, instead of one point like China shipping all over the world, having each country or each continent making things for their own use, then the U.S. will benefit the most because of that pendulum swinging back as a pendulum had gone too far. You've mentioned um, software and IT a couple of times. Although our main focus is manufacturing, about eight years ago, we tried to get going on IT. And so we were working on software or IT reshoring. And there is a trend, was, and I believe still is a trend, called rural domestic outsourcing, where companies, as opposed to having the work done by somebody in India or the Philippines or somewhere far away, go to a community that has a good community college that can teach what the kids need to know to get started with IT and hire them there, pay them maybe half or a third of what they get in Palo Alto, but the kid gets to stay home, you know, they go hunting and fishing and so on, and they go to Ma's house for dinner on Sunday. And once you've hired them, they're probably going to stay because there's nobody else in town that can offer them a job and they want to stay there. So not all that churn stuff with, you know, the people taking a job and leaving in a year, leaving in two years, and losing all that talent after you've got done. Now you got to hire more people and pay all the money. Instead, you hire them and you keep them, and yet not at the expense of Palo Alto, not quite as cheap as India, but a very nice compromise. Mm. I saw this similar model in Spain and Portugal myself. So there's places like Salamanca. So if you take just Spain, Madrid, crazy market, great people, great skills, but the attrition was high. If you go out to Salamanca, we'll have a center of four or 500 people. The attrition's low, so retention's high. People are happy. It's family-orientated. We're close to the business. People, as you say, do the right work. What we call nearshoring here, I know we differ with our... <laughs> But we've got this huge U.S. push just now of, let's call it, reshoring just now as a centers around Canada and the U.S., Halifax, Baton Rouge, et cetera, where Monroe. we're placing... Monroe. And Monroe as well. Sorry, Neil. Where we're actually placing people into these centers as part of our organization. And the work doesn't have to go offshore. We call it nearshoring. It is reshoring is what we're talking about now. And it's important. It's, it's American jobs, American people. And I think that's... The tagline of a reshoring initiative, bringing manufacturing back home, I can understand it. Neil and I have looked at this as well. With you know, There needs to be the skills. Otherwise, we're going to lose the skills and we're going to rely on the countries. That It's going to be a tough one, especially geopolitical issues. What's the big challenges, Harry? Just thinking about what's the biggest challenge in the next three to five years, do you think, with the US around this reshoring initiative? The biggest challenge has been for the last 40 years that our manufacturing cost is too high that the U.S. manufacturing cost is 30 or 40 percent higher than the low-wage countries. It's even higher than Germany and places like that have equivalent wages because Germany has this great apprenticeship program and engineers and productivity, whereas the U.S. has lost too much of that. It's going to take rebuilding the skilled workforce, quality and quantity, and we say it's also going to take getting the dollar down by 20 percent, 25 percent, take out some of the premium associated with being the reserve currency of the world, which will make us maybe not quite as good a place to be a bank, but a much better place to have a factory, which is what I'm concerned about. And I wasn't joking about your Obama connect. Be... You did the work in what the White House. Sorry, Neil, I've probably taken your thunder out. Sorry, dude. I want to hear this. I met with him at something called the insourcing forum. That was his term for it. They called me about a week in advance 
and said, can you be down here on you know Wednesday next week? So, so I, of course, you know, and I say, where do I get my tickets? No, no, that's your problem. I say, well, how about the hotel? No, no, no. And uh, I get down there and I, I you go through two levels of security to get in, one right out near the street, another one sort of into the building at the White House. And you get in and we met in the morning. Not very interesting. Got to shake the hand. Met Biden when, Biden, you know, the vice president then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then it was time to break for lunch. And we paid for our own lunch. They didn't even buy us lunch. <laughs> no way. The White House lunch has got like a paid canteen in it. Yeah, somewhere down there, there's a place you walk to. and it was... <laughs> Must be a Scottish connect in the sort of uh, the management of that. Oh, is, of course. It was an honor. And the nice thing about it was that even though they didn't pay anything, I, you know, we, my, company, my company paid it all. I doubled my speaking fees after I had met with the president. <laughs> yeah, and therefore he joined us in the podcast, Neil. Otherwise, we'd never had him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He should have got get him to do you a favor next time, Harry, right? Just bring him into this. No, that's good. So one of the questions, and I know we talked a bit about this just during the prep what I had, was we talked a little bit about how interstate you do some of the contributions toward interstate discussions as well. So I think I was mentioning my company, as I look after the Shell account, has got a big Pennsylvania plant they've just built. But there was a huge competition between the individual states on that and where to put it. Tell us a little bit about how interstate consultation can help as well. We communicate with and, and provide information to EDOs, Economic Development Organizations, which are these state organizations that go out and seek the business and seek the companies to locate there. And we provide them with a couple of things. First, our, the TCO estimator, which can be useful in helping them see, helping them convince the prospective customer or company that even though the U.S. wage rates, et cetera, are higher, that they're when they eliminate all those miscellaneous costs, that things will be equally or more profitable here. So we did that. I did an article for the FDI Intelligence Magazine, Foreign Direct Investment. I took a German company, a mythical German company, and said they have a choice. They want to sell more in the U.S. They can either expand their factory in Germany, they can build a factory in China, or they can build a factory in the U.S. And which of those is the better economic solution? And I didn't say always the U.S., but under these conditions you know, freight costs, you know, how big and how heavy is it relative to freight costs and so on. Under these conditions, the U.S. is clearly the best choice. And that's the kind of model that the states can use to go convince those companies that in their case, the U.S. is a good choice. And then we have something called the Supply Chain Gap Program, where we can identify product categories where there's a lot imported, like hundreds of millions and nothing to speak of made in the U.S. And then we can give the state a list of those products and the foreign companies that are suppliers. And then the state goes to the foreign companies to convince them to build a factory in the state to supply their local companies. And by getting the only U.S. factory that provides that component to be next door to the big factory in Chicago or in, you know, in the state, then that helps to keep that already the factory that's already there in Chicago located there because they don't want to move because the supplier now is right next door. Okay? So things like that that we can do to help the state make that happen. Finally, the states all compete. They all have incentives they give out to get the companies to move. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And when we've looked at those, they tend, they're not always, but they tend to be something like 10000 or $20,000 one time per factory worker. And people say, oh, you're giving them too much and blah, blah, blah. But if you look at it, to get a company to produce here instead of China, it's costing the company 
let's say, $15,000 a year or more per worker, and the factory is going to at least last for 10 years, that's $150,000 of higher labor cost here, everything else being equal. And so giving them ten dollars or $20,000 is not enough to bribe them to move it here. So we say those state incentives are enough to make the difference between Ohio and Pennsylvania and Indiana, but not enough to make the difference between China or India and the United States. Mm. And so what's occurring to me, Jason, is I would love to take your TCO and some of your logic that's around that and actually apply it to some of our own stuff. I IBM totally and agree. Some of our clients, because even at the micro level, because on every day, people like Shell and Chevron and, and you know all the other companies are often making decisions about where to pay, place roles where to place projects. I know it's not always manufacturing, so we'd have to take some of those arguments out, but an updated TCO tracker, I'd love to understand. We can bring and make the argument for bringing all the participants of these projects and whatever they be back in the US. I think the other thing I'd respect, I think, Neil, is how much I knew this was important. I think you and I being, what would you call it, foreigners coming into the US and uh, but looking at part you know, of the problem, not part of the solution. <laughs> there needs to be more Scotsman, Harry. In America. <laughs> joking apart, bringing American jobs back in, bringing manufacturing back home, it all makes sense to me. Where IBM's going with our, like, I say, their nearshore centers or the reshoring, it all makes sense. It's just really, really interesting to me. I hadn't realized how much data and how much of a push, because you're right, if you could be looking at this very, very narrowly and just be forced into well, guess what? Let's just keep putting it to different countries. There's a huge risk. And if we don't make a huge move or a huge change, it'll never change at all. And I think it's important from the needs of the company. The company is more secure if they have the shorter supply chain. So just an example of that, I have this wonderful chart that a lady did. It was shown at the World Economic Forum. And it said that companies are going from a before to an after condition. And the before condition is that they're trying to save pennies on the components that they're sourcing. And the after condition, the current condition, is they want to make sure they have all the components so that they can produce the product that they sell and make tens of thousands of dollars of profit on. So they've gone from nickel and diming to assuring that they stay in business and they keep their customers. And that's because of the risk that is much more present today than it was five years ago. Yeah, and look, I think we're almost at the end of our time here, Jason, in terms of we've got a few. I do have one more question for me, if that's okay. So, Harry... Where next? Where do you think this reshoring is going? And if you had a crystal ball for the next five, 10 years, what are the trends you think we'll see that will either push the pendulum one way or the other? Yeah. Uh, first, a good chunk of the current jobs being announced are these heavily subsidized, federally subsidized jobs. They're not going to be able to keep doing that. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. We don't have the money. The deficit's too big. So that's going to come out. And so it's going to be up to companies to continue to see that their survival depends on producing here or, or here, Mexico, Canada, UK, you know, whatever, but somewhere reliable. It looks to me like the US-China disagreement isn't going to go away. <laughs> A small tiff. Yes. <laughs> that risk is going to be there. We have one survey that would suggest that the probability of war in, over Taiwan is something like 3.5% per year. And you can say that's not very much, but I say over a 10-year horizon, that's 35%. That's a lot to risk your company on. So we think that risk is going to stay there. And therefore, the, the work will, especially from China, the work will come here. We believe the Section 301 tariffs, the 25% tariff, are going to stay in place. Biden's not going to give them up. 
And so for multitude of reasons like that, that the trend is going to still be very favorable. The biggest problem is skilled workforce, having enough people with enough skills available. So when you want to put a thousand person factory in that you can go out and hire a thousand people to man it engineers, tool makers, you know, whatever it is. And that's the single biggest thing that if the ineffective I were the czar, I'd shut down a quarter of the universities and turn them into training centers for technical skills. The country would be better off and the worker would be better off. That is beautiful full circle for our podcast right here, considering we are energy workforce for tomorrow. I think what you've just said is the workforce for tomorrow should be all about manufacturing and training manufacturing skills to be about and not so much on just philosophy degrees <laughs> and so forth <laughs> not to disparage philosophy i'm sure it's one, one, one or two courses though is nice to have yeah exactly exactly so as far as i think you know that has been absolutely amazing and super interesting harry a completely different perspective than we've had before in this totally and something i have not actually had a conversation about directly in this detail yeah. before so and it's something i've dabbled in but more the other side before so for me it was super interesting so thank you so Pleasure, much guys yeah because i think this subject could always be very pro-america anti-elsewhere but actually as you dig into it harry it's more there's numbers there and the reason to do it business-wise but also socially as well and balance it out i've learned a lot in this one I mean, since you and I connected a couple of weeks ago and read your material, et cetera, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you. So the only one thing I mentioned to you in the preamble that I think is interesting, I use the work of Ray Dalio, who's the founder of Bridgewater Associates. Yeah. And he's done this study of how countries or empires rise and fall. And you had Holland and then the UK and then the US recently and China coming up to challenge the US, which a lot of people agree is at risk. And if you look at the factors that he says cause a country to do this or to flatten out or come down, by achieving reshoring, I'm convinced that the U.S. will stay at the top, you know, stay up here, stay in steady state longer, give China a chance for demographics and so on to peak out, or a chance for the two countries to come up here and coexist. And with the U.S. being no longer feeling like it's in decline, knowing that it's economically competitive, and therefore being able to negotiate more flexibly with China instead of feeling it's got its back against the wall because the tough new guy's coming up to beat it. <laughs> I think reshoring is good for the individual. It's good for the company. It's good for the country, even including the survival of the world. Because when you imagine things that could happen if things went to hell over there. Harry, what we'll do, Neil and I will quote, if you're okay, put the reshoring initiative website and also your connects in the show notes. And anything else that you want to share, I think I've got yeah. quite a lot of that stuff. I think Neil will put that in. So you've got to... my signature, which has LinkedIn and things like that in it too, that you can throw. Yeah, on. awesome. Let me do that. But it's been an absolute pleasure, Harry. So thank, thank you, guys. And the summary is we're all Scottish. I think that's what we <laughs> that's all just decided, wasn't it? That's all... When you've got it out, make sure you send me a link and we'll promote it. Perfect. Perfect. All right, Harry. Thanks thank you so very much. Harry. much. Harry. Have a good one. Guys, thank you very much. If you like what we want to do and you want to be the next Harry or you've got any comments, please drop Neil and I a note. As we've always said, we'll adopt, adapt, improve this podcast. But it's been a great one. Have a good one. <laughs> Neil, see you later. Cheers. See you later, man. Have a good one. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.